is that there's this distortion of desire that comes in our lives when we are specifically frustrated when we are tempted. And we are challenged then, most of all, to be a person who is not a person of integrity. We're the type of person who, because of the trials and the temptations that exist in our life, are quick to blame God. And James tells us that when we're blaming God, we're failing to see in those moments that God is not only one who calls us to integrity, but God God is a God who actually gives good gifts to us. And then in this final section of chapter 1, we see that James has been actually telling us that there are practical ways that we can trust God in temptation. We can hear the word. We can receive the word. We can do the word. But now he wants us to see one final thing, what it looks like to actually display the word in our lives. So once again, we're going to read all of chapter 1 as we study what James has here for us. James writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, Slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, 
he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us as we turn our attention to your word. We ask, Father, that you would help us to behold wonderful things from your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of scripture as it has been decisively revealed in your word. God, we ask now that you would help us to persevere in this time, that we might not only receive your word, but that we might be changed as a result of studying your word together, that we might grow, if we are Christians, into conformity with Christ. And if perhaps someone is here who is not yet a Christian, whether they think themselves to be a believer and they actually are not, or they know themselves to not be a believer, God, we ask that you would be merciful in this time to use your word to open their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune name. Amen. Amen. Recently, I was speaking with a young lady who said that she didn't go to church anywhere because she did not like what she saw in most churches. Religion. And she was very quick to tell me that she was not helped by religion. She saw the forms of religion and different expressions of religion and lots of religious people, and she concluded that it really wasn't worth her time, that it was unhelpful. Though she did tell me that I could check back with her in a few years to see if she still felt the same way. But perhaps that's how you feel today. That religion as Richard Dawkins said, is the root of all evil. Or, as Karl Marx said, the opium of the people. Or, as my acquaintance said, perhaps in a room filled with probably a majority of Christians, we would not say one of those things. As my acquaintance said, maybe you would say, though, religion is unhelpful. As far as you can tell, it doesn't really seem to do any good. It doesn't, as far as you can tell, produce anything meaningful, not only in your life, but the lives of the people that you know who profess to be religious. That it doesn't seem to really change much of anything in the way that we experience the world around us. Would you be surprised to learn that the Bible actually agrees with you? That the Bible has a category for religion that is unhelpful and meaningless and pointless and, as James says, worthless, regardless of what it may mean to those who practice it. In James chapter 1, the apostle says that it is possible for Christians to assume that they're religious when they are not. And it is possible for Christians to think something of themselves and of their religious experience in the world that is actually not true of themselves or their religious experience in the world. 
that it is possible that their religion, or at least their observance of their religion, is worthless if they do not display the word by taming the tongue, showing compassion to the needy, and maintaining moral purity because genuine religion displays the word. Notice first, genuine religion displays the word by taming the tongue. Look with me again in verse 26. If anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James does not tell us to silence the tongue, but he does tell us to, verse 26, bridle the tongue, to restrain the tongue, to learn how to control our speech, especially if we think that we are, verse 26, religious, a word that he uses three times in the same passage in just two short verses. It's a comprehensive word for all of the specific ways in which a heart relationship to God is actually expressed in someone's life. Religion for James is neither a private nor a personal matter. That's the way that we think of religion. It's my private personal experience of my own profession of faith. But James will have none of that. There's no such thing as private religion that is personally yours, or as Johnny Cass said, your own personal Jesus. It is the external manifestation of the heart relationship publicly displayed for everyone to see. An uncontrolled speech, James says, is representative of something. It's not just representative of somebody who's in a bad mood. And it's not really representative of somebody who's young and needs to get a little bit older. It's not representative of somebody who has not yet learned the fine art of not saying things that other people shouldn't hear or don't want to hear. What it is representative of, James says, is of an unhealthy heart relationship where somebody is false and is not what they think that they are. We may have all of the outward motions of religion, membership at a church, attendance and worship on a Sunday, Participation in the sacraments. Financial contribution regularly in the life of the church. Investment in mission for the sake of other people. All of those are things that we are supposed to do. But, James says, if sinful speech, like gossip, or coarse joking, or spiteful words, characterize our lives in public or in private, in print or online, our religion, no matter how we might feel about it, is worthless. And James says it's not only worthless, he says that we're telling ourselves something about our inner state that is simply not true, regardless of how we might feel and irrespective of what we might say. If anyone thinks that he is Religious and does not bridle his tongue, control his tongue. But notice this, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. We may have all of the religion of the infamous Pharisee in Luke 18. 
If you have your Bible, turn with me there now, Luke 18. But just like that Pharisee in Luke 18, we are self-deceived in the practice of our meaningless religion. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Brothers and sisters, fellow members of this church, if you practice religion, but you fail to restrain your tongue, you are practicing what James says is a central deception. And one of the very things that James is concerned about while writing to these 12 tribes of the dispersion. Look with me in James 1 verse 16. He says, do not be deceived. Now drop your eyes down to verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now drop to 26. If anyone does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. What is absolutely terrifying about these references, when we're reading the Bible carefully, is that James says it is possible to not only be deceived by others, but to deceive ourselves and be deceived by ourselves. That we are completely capable of persuading ourselves without the help of anybody else. That what is wrong is right. That what is bad is actually not that bad. That what is true is false. For the last several years, I've heard a lot from a lot of people about how they're worried about other people being deceived. They're worried about other people being deceived by false information. And they're worried about other people being deceived by a false narrative. And they're worried about other people being deceived by false people. But you know what I haven't heard a lot of from a whole lot of people over the last several years? The very thing that James himself is concerned about. All of the lies that we are capable of telling ourselves. All of the lies that we are capable of telling not only to God and everybody around us, but to ourselves to make ourselves think that we are okay when we are not okay. And to make ourselves believe that something is not that big of a deal when it is actually a very big deal. Or how we are capable of making ourselves feel that we are just fine with God when the Apostle James says, our religion is worthless. Brothers and sisters, when we deceive ourselves, we begin to think things that we would never think in our right mind. Like, it's okay for me to allow from the same mouth blessings and cursings so that I would praise God from whom all blessings flow and curse all of the idiots in front of me. 
And if you think that I'm wrong or overstating James' argument, take the next two days and just listen to all of the ways that people are talking about others and to others as the midterm elections approach. James says it is very possible for you to, quote, be right and be wrong and be self-deceived. And what's worse is God's evaluation of that person's religion, the religion of the self-deceivers, the people who think that they understand themselves better than other people. James says that you don't understand yourself. We think, I know me, and I understand, and I have clarity, and James says, you don't know you, you don't understand, and you are actually incapable of evaluating who you actually are independent of God and other people. James says their religion is worthless, absolutely meaningless. It is completely pointless. It is useful in no significant way. It is inadequate. It is insufficient. It is deficient. And it is not a question of sincerity for James. It is not worthless because they are insincere. It is worthless no matter how sincere they are because, as the apostle tells us, our religion can be sincerely worthless. The tongue and the heart are so intimately linked for James that speech becomes this accurate index of actually who we are at the core of what we really believe regardless of what we might say to everyone else because just like Jesus, James says, out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know what you really believe about God? Pay attention for the next few days on all the ways that you speak about other people and to other people, and to your colleagues, and your co-workers, and the people you disagree with, and the people you don't like, and the people you wish weren't, you weren't even around. Let me ask you, do you call yourself a child of God? Are you sure? What is your speech like? Is the mark of being a child of God evident in your speech? Better, would the people who know you best say that the mark of being a child of God is evident in your speech? Husbands, is that what your wife would say? Wives, is that what your husbands would say? Children, is that what your parents would say? Parents or members of this church, is that what other members of this church would say? Single or married, young or old, rich or poor. Would the people around you say, what is evident in what you primarily talk about reveals that you are one of God's children? Or would they say something else? And would they say, like James, that perhaps your religion is worthless? It doesn't really do anything. But if your heart is right, your tongue will show it. Because we display the word by taming the tongue. Notice second, display the word by showing compassion to the needy. Look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Whereas uncontrolled speech is representative of false religion 
and an unhealthy heart relationship. Concern for the vulnerable is, verse 27, pure and undefiled before or in the sight of God the Father. So James says, true religion is displayed when we, verse 27, visit orphans and widows, the two primary classes of needy people in the ancient world. Which is why in the Old Testament we find words like these in the book of Deuteronomy. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And if you don't know where that is, just go left for a long time. (laughs) Deuteronomy 24. Verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. When the people of Israel were in need, God provided for them. And he wanted them to remember that. He wanted them to remember that and to never forget that. Even and especially when they were looking out upon the needy people around them. And he wanted the story of his redemptive provision to actually be the motivating force behind their compassion. Behind their compassion for the poor and the marginalized and the disenfranchised people. To the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Or as James says, to the orphans and widows. Because that story is not primarily about God meeting the physical needs of people while in slavery in the land of Egypt. But that story is about God dealing with the deeper spiritual problem of people's slavery to sin. Sin which actually results in something. Sin that results in death. Physical death, yes. There were all types of physical people dying while they were in Egypt. But something worse. Their spiritual death. And when they were living with no hope and without God and as slaves to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt... God wanted them to remember that as slaves, God redeemed them from bondage to Pharaoh and bondage to sin. And he will do the same for everybody who is here today because like the people of Israel, every person apart from Christ is in slavery. You're not in slavery in the land of Egypt, but you are in slavery to your sin. And you might not think that you are enslaved to it, but let me ask you, can you stop doing the things that you know that you shouldn't? Can you stop doing the things that you know or have been told are sinful? And if you're honest here, you know that the answer to that question is no. You can't stop. You try, but then you fail again. So you make larger promises that you cannot keep. And you cannot keep them if you're honest, not because you just simply do not want to keep them, but because you love your sin. Your sin makes you feel good. It makes you feel loved. It makes you feel accepted. It makes you feel vindicated. All the while driving you farther from God and closer to hell. A hell that is real. And the Bible says where you will spend all of your eternity as a result of your sin. And remembering that. And the slavery that we are in. 
We tell ourselves the redemptive story that God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved sinful people in slavery to sin that they could not stop, dealt with our sin, as our brother reminded us earlier, that God pays the price and deals with the sin problem that we have when we could not deal with it ourselves. And how did God do that? That he sent his son into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a pure and undefiled life before God and then die as a substitute on the cross to die in our place when we should die so that we would not have to die if we would look to him in faith and believe that that death is not only sufficient for our redemption, but it is enough. It is enough for all of the sin we have committed. It is enough for all of the sin that we are currently committing. It is enough for all of the sin that we will commit. That it is enough to satisfy all of the wrath of God that should be poured out on each and every sin that we should have ever committed in our lives. So that we would be forgiven of our sin. But even greater than just being forgiven of sin, that we might be reconciled to God. God brought his people out of slavery and got them away from a bad relationship and put them into a relationship with him so that they might know him and that they might enjoy him and that they might know that he loves them and he enjoys them. Brothers and sisters, do you know if you are a believer that God enjoys you, that God loves you, that God rejoices over you, that God delights in you just the way that you are? One of the things that I love to say to my kids is that I love you just the way that you are. Just the way that you are. I don't need you to be any different. I like you just like you are. And on a grander and greater and more beautiful scale, God says, I love you and delight in you just the way that you are. I've made you mine and made you my people. God, wanted his people to remember that story so that they would let that story be the motivating force behind their care for the poor. And God wanted his people to remember that story so that they would share that story with other people so that they might know that they can be a part of that story too. Brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you don't call yourself a Christian, would you like to be a part of that story? You can be a part of that story today. You can be forgiven of your sin just like the people of Israel, just like the other Christians in this room, just like anybody who has ever trusted in God and in his Messiah, Jesus Christ. You can do that by simply turning away from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ by faith, by walking away from the things that will destroy your life and walking toward Jesus Christ, by putting off the old life patterns and putting on new life patterns You can do that right now and ask God to forgive you of your sin. And the most astounding thing in the Bible is that he assures us that he will forgive you right now. That you don't have to wait and you don't have to wonder. You can have absolute, confident assurance that if you trust in Jesus Christ right now, you are one of God's children and he has forgiven you and he will make you his forevermore. Friends, if you're here and you'd like to learn more about that, we would love to tell you about that message. That is why we are here each and every week. You can find me at the tunnel after the service. You can catch any of the members here. You can find Pastor Nick who was praying earlier or Rodney who's presiding today. We would love to open the Bible with you and to tell you that. But when we think of the story and we think of what James is doing here, he's not quoting that because those texts are primarily for unbelievers, are they? 
He's reminding us of this story so that we, believers, would remember. Are you here and are you struggling today trying to put off old life patterns and put on new life patterns? Are you here and you're struggling today and what it means to actually allow the gospel story to care and to be the motivating force behind everything in your life? Friends, what you need to do is not just grin and bear it and try harder, but to remember, to remember what God has done and to allow that story to sink so deep within you that it actually drives and animates everything in your life. One of the things that I see as a pastor more than anything else when people, some who are here and others, come into my study is that they are trying harder to figure out how they can try harder. And the Bible will have none of it. The Bible never tells you to try harder. The Bible tells you to remember what God has done. Remember, when you were slaves, I brought you out. When you were dead in sin, I made you alive. When you were lost and without help, I inserted myself into your life and I saved you. And allow that to be what motivates and drives everything in your life. Friend, if you do not read the book of James that way, you will be crushed by the weight of the book of James. Because you will just simply try harder to not say curse words or to think bad things. Or to be nice to people that are hard to be nice to. And you will completely miss what James is saying. Believer, remember the gospel story. As God has given, so we give. When we were in need, God provided for us. So now remembering God's redeeming provision for us. When we see others in need, we provide for them. But when do we provide for them? We are to provide for them and show compassion for them, James says, verse 27, in their affliction. We are to do it in their suffering. We are to do it throughout the duration of their sadness and sorrow. We are to do it in the midst of unspeakable horror and complex tragedy in their life. One of my friends in town is a single mom. She's never married and has been looking for love in all of the wrong places since high school. So naturally, there were several of us that were thrilled a few years ago when she met the man of her dreams until he turned out to be a nightmare. And then as she walked through all of the pain of another failed relationship and all of the embarrassment of a very public, necessary legal proceeding for her protection, one of our mutual friends did for her what no one else thought to do. He just came and he sat with her in court. He took PTO so that he could be there and sit with her in her pain. He's not a Christian, and neither is she, but he practiced something that James is trying to teach us, the church, about what it actually means to display concern for others and bear witness to the characteristics of God's concern for us. James is not saying, be more kind. You're a pretty kind bunch. James is saying that we need to learn how to shoulder one another's needs as if we're a lost parent. That we need to learn how to actually defend the vulnerable in a threatening world as if we are missing a missing spouse in their life. We are to be for them what they do not have in the world, or as Alec Mater said, the ever-practical James proposes a practical test as he writes to us about caring for others in their affliction. And he doesn't say that you need to have the answer to all of their problems to be qualified to do it. 
James actually never says, you need to make sure that you have a competent, coherent, apologetic answer to help people in their affliction. That's how we think, and that's why we don't do it. James says, you need to simply visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Several years ago, we had a situation in the church that was tragic, and we, I had to walk into a room that I never thought I would walk into. And coming out of that much later, I was speaking to somebody, and they said, what did you say? How, how do you help somebody at that moment? I said, I didn't say anything. There was nothing good to say. I came in there, I read the Bible, and I said, I know you feel like God is gone and that he's not here, but he is real and he has not left you. And then I sat there. And I just sat there. There was nothing I could say that was going to fix it. There was no cheap answer to overcome their pain. I just tried to remind them. I know he feels far away, but he is here. And I know that you feel that he lost the wheel, but he didn't. James says, we don't have to have all of the profound answers. We need to simply visit people. And he says, verse 27, the outworking of God's fatherhood in our lives is displayed in our concern for the needy when they are like children without parents or widows without spouses as they battle things like cancer or cry after miscarriage or sit in silence through infertility or isolate themselves when they're lonely or fret about in their life when they are anxious from all of the things that they are concerned about or when they give up on everything when they're depressed and they do not know how to get out of bed, or they try to make major life decisions all on their own because they feel that they're all on their own, or they hide during the holidays because they don't have a family. But when we visit them in their grief and learn how to actually see them in their affliction, we can finally communicate to them what they may know to be true but don't actually believe. That God loves them. That he is near to the brokenhearted. That he will never, ever leave them or forsake them. Even when he feels far away and they feel completely invisible. I don't know if you know this, but there are people who are around you today who feel invisible. They're here, but they think no one sees them. They're here, and they think no one understands them. If we are to be the church, we must let them know that they are seen. The kind of religion, James says, verse 27, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father displays that the implanted word has taken root in our souls by showing compassion to the needy. Display the word by taming the tongue. Display the word by showing compassion to the needy. Notice third, display the word by maintaining moral purity. Verse 27, again. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Religion in the sight of God that is pure and undefiled is both, James tells us, concern for the needy and holy. Because true religion mirrors God's care and it reflects God's holiness. There is no other way. You cannot be holy and not care. You cannot care and not be holy. That's the world's answer. We're going to do all of the right things, but we don't care. Not Christian. You know what? We're going to care for all of these people, but we're not going to believe what God says. Not Christian. It doesn't matter what they do and it doesn't matter what they say. 
Because James says a lot of people can be sincerely wrong in all of the right things that they do. And they can be sincerely wrong in all of the right things that they believe. And brothers and sisters, that is not the gospel. Brothers and sisters, there is a type of religious morality that looks right. It is active for the needy. And there is a type of religious morality that sounds right, advocating for the vulnerable. But is not, James tells us, distinguishable from the world. And God is not impressed. James tells us that this type of religion, too, is worthless because it has not kept itself unstained from the world. But when God sees a faith that is unstained from the world, uninfluenced by the world, so that it is impartial to the poor, it is concerned for the vulnerable, it is receptive to the implanted word, it is active and it is persevering in holiness. It is not just realizing holiness as a standard, but it is trying to strive for holiness. He sees a faith that is unstained or free. Free from the world. It's not bound, it's set free to be, verse 18, a visible kind of first fruits of his creatures. Because that type of faith has learned the joy of being free from sin tainted people in a sin tainted societal structure, the ones that we are surrounded by every day. True freedom, James says is not so heavenly-minded that it does no earthly good. True freedom is so heavenly-minded that it is free from the world, unstained by the world, because it is no longer impressed with what the world has to offer. Recently, while I was preaching for some Ukrainian youth, one of the most impressive things to me was how they had been set free from the delusion of the American dream by the war with Russia. They were finally free to be who they were, Ukrainian. So they spoke as young teenagers about wanting to live closer to their family rather than move away and to get married to another Ukrainian so that they could teach their kids the Ukrainian language as a way to preserve their culture so that it would never be stamped out. They were free to be who they were and they didn't need to try to be something that they weren't because they were no longer influenced by what other people thought of them in their culture. They were happy to be Ukrainian and they did not care to be perceived primarily as American. Friends, I wonder if you and I can say that. That we are more influenced by what it means to be Christian than we are for what it means to be American. If not, we are stained by the world. If you are more concerned about being perceived as right than following God, James says you're not following God. And if you're more concerned about your side winning than following God and living concerned for the vulnerable and caring for the needy and being unstained by everything around you, I don't care who you vote for. I don't care what side you're on. James says your religion is worthless. The world, both its people and its societal structures, are trying to squeeze us into their mold. But James says that we must, verse 27, keep ourselves free from it. We're not to just pray, God, take all of them away and get me out of this. We are to actively keep ourselves from these things and not do them. Because it is easy to adopt a general way of life, which avoids all of the open pitfalls of sin, which is no longer discernibly different from the style of people who live without Christ.
Friends, the world is constantly challenging our commitment to Christ. Are we his or are we not? Will we follow him or will we not? Alec Madeira said it this way. Are we his not by virtue of a past decision allowed to grow stale, but in the daily pressure of the often small things by which our lives are besmirched? If it is, for it is more likely true that if life were all large, big decisions, few of us would go far away from wrong. Yet, faced with the world's ceaseless bombardment of our eyes and ears and thoughts and imaginations, the world's insidious erosion of our values and standards and clamor for our time, money, and energy, it is easy to adopt a general way of life, which though it avoids all of the open pitfalls of sin, yet is not discernibly different from the style of those who do not know Christ. It is one thing to have yielded your life to Christ. It is quite another to live consciously in light of that yielding day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, decade in and decade out, as we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Are you his or are you not? And what excuses are you making as to why you won't follow him right now? What are the reasons why you don't have to obey? What are the hardships that you'll put forward and say, these are the reasons that make it difficult for me to do what God wants me to do? When God sees this, James says he sees a person who has a worthless religion. But when God sees people who yield to him in all of the areas of their life, James says God sees a person who is pure and undefiled before him, before verse 27, God the Father, a true heir of Jesus' teaching, made righteous by Jesus Christ, made evident by God's distinct ethic working itself out in their life. But the self-deceived have willingly overlooked what God wants. God does not want the experiences of religion or the purity of the experience in a Reformed church with all of the Reformed traditions or the action of religion social concern for all of the people who are marginalized, but pure and undefiled practice of religion that displays the word by taming the tongue and showing compassion to the needy and maintaining moral purity because genuine religion displays the word. And James tells us it proves that we are children of God the Father. But why should the tongue and care for the needy and personal holiness be chosen by James to illustrate our obedience to God. We only see it when we actually look at the passage as a whole. I want you to look at the whole text with me again. Notice what James does in verse 18. Of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We did not become his, he made us his. By his own will, he brought us forth. He made us alive and we responded. He called us out of darkness to light. He made us live when we were dead so that we would be a kind of first fruits. And what happens for James when that word is actually taken root in our lives from verses 19 to 25? James tells us that there is this new life that is produced in the person, that they will no longer be quick to be angry, that they will be slow to speak, 
that they will meditate on the implanted word, that they will be doers of the word. And what kind of doing does he have in mind when the new life is displayed? He tells us, verses 26 and 27, the very things that will take over the rest of the book for James, being impartial to people, chapter 2, learning how to control your speech, chapter 3, being holy, the rest of chapter 3 through chapter 5. And they demonstrate something, not that we're good people, but that we're God's children. And in so doing, James helps us see that actually both extremes of people, on the right or the left or however we might categorize them, are wrong. People who think that they just need to know truth but never live it are not God's people. And people who do a lot of righteous things but do not know God's implanted truth are not God's people. James wants us to see that this is no comprehensive list but it is an appropriate test of all of our religious activity and identity so that we do not think things about ourselves that are not true of ourselves. James doesn't want us to think that if we just care for the vulnerable and if we somehow manage to do all of the right things in our life, that we are God's children. James is telling us something deeper, that these are a test of what is true about us and all of the daily pressures of our lives. James is actually telling us how to evaluate if we are people of integrity, or as one pastor that I admire calls it, if we are people who are people of congruence. This is what he said. The Christian life is the lifelong practice of attending to the details of congruence. Congruence between ends and means. Congruence between what we do and the way that we do it. Congruence between preaching and living that preaching out in our lives. Congruence between the sermon and what is lived in both the preacher and the congregation. The congruence of the word made flesh in Jesus with what is lived in our flesh. Brothers and sisters, is there congruence in your life? Fellow members of this church, what the world is longing for is not only that we would have the right message, that we would be the right kind of people in the wrong kind of world who are proclaiming the right kind of message while also living a life that is righteous. But often what they see when they look in is a group of people who have a lot of right truth but actually don't love one another in the world around them. And there are a lot of people, like my friend I spoke about at the beginning, who leave the church because she sees a bunch of people caring for the world around her. But what she's failed to see is that those people also have missed something crucial as well. They must have God's truth revealed in God's Christ. James tells us that perfection is seen when we are congruent people of integrity. Let us be so. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us, that you would help us today to receive these words and to apply these truths to our life that we might know more of the wonderful blessing of what it means to be followers of Christ. Father, we pray that you would forgive us of the sins that we have committed, specifically with the tongue, speech that is destructive and unwholesome, speech that has crushed people around us, speech that has proclaimed something about us that we don't believe, that we are false. And Father, we ask that you would forgive us for all of the ways that we have overlooked the vulnerable and needy around us, that we have failed to sit with people in their affliction. And Father, we ask that you would forgive us 
for not being free from the world, but being enslaved to the world, longing to be approved by the world rather than approved by you. We ask, God, that your word would drive itself deep into our hearts, that we might become people of integrity, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing as we follow the way of the Christ, the way of the cross. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.